weeks. Uh, it's been an eventful uh, few weeks for us here at PCC. One of the things we'll see here, let's see if we can get those up. There they are, uh, is the baptism. So last time I spoke to you was Thanksgiving at our combined service. And right after the combined service, we had two baptisms. You guys remember, it was Alice, right, from the ACF group and Owen from the uh, YF group. So I'm very thankful that Alice is surrounded, surrounded by a community that loves her. Same with Owen, having uh, a fellowship that loves and cares for you along with your family. So that was special for us to be able to celebrate with you that special time in your life. Okay, also we had our ACF Christmas party. Those are the pictures on the left. And Thanksgiving, uh, those of you guys came to church had the hot pot right here in our um, cafeteria. So I'm glad that we could celebrate those two things. Okay, now here are the pictures from last week's Christmas caroling. And I understand that anthology was, okay, so we had to stand against the wall. So I understand yesterday when you guys went, you guys had a very different time. Let me see if I have that from yesterday. Okay, actually, something else. So this in the upper left is a uh, kind of sad time. This was Judy Koo's mom passed away. Um, 100, am I correct? I think she was about 100. Yes, 99, she, she's 99. Okay, thank you. And uh, Tim uh, Shine led that memorial service. So I'm thankful that Tim could lead that family through that difficult time as they lost uh, their mom. And then also part of cell A is the Christmas party. Those are three middle pictures. And then the upper right is the YF party held at um, Eli's house this, this uh, last uh, yesterday. So thankful they could celebrate Christmas together there. Okay, now this one is cell B. Am I getting a little feedback or anything? Thank you. Okay, so uh, cell A, you guys are cleaning up. I think after Thanksgiving, that's how it's mopping off the washer, uh, sprung a leak. And then here at Anthology, I understand you guys are able to interact with the residents, unlike the ACFers who cannot interact. Is that correct? Yeah, so they let them go to the rooms and they let them interact. I felt, I felt envious that you guys got a chance to interact with the residents. And we didn't, but thank you, Cell A, for preparing for, or B, for preparing our anthology and Christmas caroling together. Okay, so let's get on today's uh, sermon today. Uh, I'm going to bring you back two months ago. Two months ago, uh, PE had a leaders retreat, and I asked Irene, can I lead a faith walk? And Irene said, yes, you can do it. So I, I, I led our leaders on a faith walk. So if you're the leader, you cannot speak to the person you're leading. They were blindfolded, and you would lead them down this path. And I asked the staff, I said, where's the best path to walk on? They said, there's a path that goes around the campsite. It's one mile in length. I said, it's perfect. So I, I got on this path and we're leading them along and everything's going well. And we're having a great time. And, we're, and all our leaders are leading the other leaders silently, but by trusting them, having faith in them, having faith in your leader to lead you, I was very happy because I'm like, yeah, this is going great. This is really good. And then about a mile into it, I realized we are really far away from the campsite. I didn't know where we were. But I had a decision to make. I said, okay, so we're walking down the road. We, here we are. I, I can't even see the campsite anymore. Do we keep plowing forward or do we turn around and go home? And so I said, no, I'm a courageous leader. Let's just go. Let's just go. Let's keep walking and keep walking. And so three miles later, after hills, valleys, walking along the highway, we make it back to the camp. And not too many people are happy with me after this walk because that turned out to be a really, really long faith walk. And so the, the torture wasn't done yet because then the speaker, Mike, we were talking about Bible study that night. And Pastor Mike said, okay, so when you do Bible study, don't be like Christopher Columbus. I think, okay, don't be like, and don't be like Elder Gordon when he led us today. I'm thinking, uh-oh, this doesn't sound good. So he said, Christopher Columbus didn't know where he was, didn't know where he was going, and didn't know when he got there, just like today. And I'm thinking, oh, that wasn't so good. So 
that was a poor example of being a leader. He was pointing out to Christopher Columbus and myself during that faith walk that we didn't know where we were going. We didn't know how to get there. We didn't know when we got to where we were going. And what I'm going to challenge you with today, as we look at today's passage, we're talking about Christ and his coming to earth. Is he a leader that we can trust? Is Christ a leader that is leading us and he knows where he's going? Is Christ a leader that says, this is where you are and this is where I'm going to take you? Is he someone we can put our faith into? And so we're going to talk about, Hannah kind of told us already here, that we're going to look back at Christ in the past, in, in the time of the Exodus, Christ and the line of David, and Christ's kingdom right now, having peace and joy. So it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. Christ never really defines the kingdom. Christ never really goes, this is the kingdom. He always has these little pieces that we have to put together. And we look at Matthew 1 today, which we've been through a few times, we're going to see how it comes together, how the kingdom comes together, and it assures us that we can trust Christ as our leader, head, and our shepherd. Okay, let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for bringing us into your presence with these songs about Christ's birth. How wonderful it is that we can sing Gloria in excelsis Deo, that glory to you in the highest, the God that deserves all praise, the God throughout history, the God in the present, the God in the future who will lead us, has led us, and is leading us now. May we put our faith in Christ. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to bring you back to this familiar passage, which you guys have gone through if you're in RISE, if you're in cell group A, cell group B. I'm not sure why I have to do this or not, but it, it's Matthew, uh, the genealogies. Matthew 1 has the genealogies. And the first genealogy, these first verses here from 1 to 6, covers 14 generations. The second one covers 14 generations. Third one, 14 generations. This is about 1,000 years from uh, Abraham all the way to King David. So you guys have gone through it before. I'm not going to read through it all. But just realize that Matthew is bringing us to something important here as we study the genealogy. The genealogy is basically a point that Christ is the Messiah. Christ is our King. As we look back at these genealogies, will they help us understand where Christ is leading us to? So we're starting off here with the first person here. It's a guy named Abraham. God calls Abraham. And he's bringing Abraham on an interesting journey. Um, number one, he comes out of Ur. Number two, he goes to Haran. Number three, he's in a promised land. So Abraham's just like, I'm leading, uh, God leads him, and he just follows. He goes, one, two, three. He's in the promised land. And then all of a sudden, there's a famine. And during that famine, God says, you know what? Go to Egypt. And so he goes to number four. He goes to Egypt. And you remember kind of things in Egypt. Things don't go well for Abraham in Egypt. But God still blesses him, gets him out of Egypt. And number five, brings him back to the promised land. Think that's an interesting story. Did God really know what he was doing? Why did God bring him all the way up to um, Haran, to Shechem, back to Egypt, back out? Well, there's a plan in place. And as Abraham followed him, he became the man of God that he needed to be. I don't know if you remember, that was Pastor Hunt's first sermon to us when he spoke to us when he interviewed. But he, he had a plan to make Abraham into the man that God meant him to be. And that was the journey that he was on. Okay, now how's that relate to us today? How's that relate to Christ today? As you guys know your Bible as well, you know that Christ was born in Bethlehem. I don't have a number one there, but there's Bethlehem. And then immediately after, who's after him? King Herod, right? King Herod wants to kill all the babies. Mary and Joseph have to flee to, to Egypt. That's strange. Does, is God really in control? Is God really 
able to protect and does a little baby and a family have to run to Egypt and eventually they go back to Galilee, go back to Nazareth. They see a pattern there. You see what Abraham, what God did with Abraham going from the promised land down to Egypt and back out. That's the exact same thing that Christ did. You think, oh, that just happened by accident. That just happened by Herod, you know, trying to kill the babies and so No, that was actually God's foreshadowing it all the way back in Abraham. You think that's the way God led Abraham? That's the way God led Christ, our Messiah. Let's go a little bit deeper into that. So we look into this passage again, you see another pattern here uh, for Abraham. And this time it's not Abraham himself, but it's his descendants called Israelites. The Israelites at this time are now in slavery for, for 400 years in Egypt. We went through Genesis, you guys remember this, that account. So after 400 years, God brings them out. And if you remember, he brings them out of Egypt. It's through the Red Sea, through the Red Sea. You think, oh, that's kind of interesting. God brings them through the Red Sea. But you guys know in 1 Corinthians, we're going to get this in a couple of chapters. Pastor Hans will teach us about this. In 1 Corinthians 10, it said, as the Israelites were baptized into Moses through the sea and through the cloud. There's some kind of baptism going on. When you leave the land of slavery and sin, and you're coming and going toward the promised land, that's kind of like a baptism. You're leaving the old behind. You're leaving your sin in this water, and you come out the new person in Christ. So you guys just got baptized. You remember that. That's what the whole baptism was about. And as Israel leaves Egypt and moves toward the promised land, going through this baptism, they're going through the baptism of the Red Sea. Okay, then what happens? 50 days later, they end up this place called Mount Sinai. Okay, so the base of, from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai takes about 50 days. So they're wandering through this desert, they're in the wilderness, and they make a bad decision. You guys remember? We don't trust God. We don't think you know where you're leading us to. We don't think that you know where you're going. And they get rebel against God, and they make that golden calf. And, and, and God is completely upset with them, and he punishes them. Many of them die. And then what does he do? Then at that same place, he brings them the law from Mount Sinai. You know, he, he comes back and, and kind of reestablishes a covenant that this is my law. You will follow my law. So let's go through it again. The baptism, the temptation, and then the giving of the law. Okay, you guys know where I'm going with this because you guys have studied Matthew. You guys remember this, right? So in Matthew, what do we learn? Christ begins his ministry with what? Baptism. Baptism by John the Baptist. Now, I don't know if you thought about this, but John the Baptist was baptizing in the River Jordan. What is he doing? He's telling all his people symbolically, your sins are going into the Jordan. When you come out of the Jordan, you're basically a new person, baptism. What is Christ doing? Christ is going in the Jordan like, oh, I need my sins cleansed? No, absolutely not. Christ is going in the Jordan to absorb all those sins. Like all those sins are floating around the Jordan symbolically. When Christ goes in the Jordan to be baptized, he's not, he doesn't need any sins taken away. He's symbolically taking all of our sins in that baptism. Christ is doing the opposite of what we do in baptism. We give Christ all of his sin. In baptism, Christ takes all of our sin. So Christ starts his ministry saying, you know what? I'm going to be baptized because I'm symbolically showing you. I'm going to absorb all your sin out of the Jordan. I'm taking all that sin. So it's a different kind of baptism, but it's the same symbolic thing that God is saying. You know what? There's a pattern in place here. Okay, the temptation. What comes right after Christ is baptized? 40 days of wilderness. He's walking around the wilderness just like the Israelites. And he's tempted just like the Israelites. He faces a problem just like the Israelites, but he doesn't fall. He doesn't give in to the temptation like the Israelites. He doesn't doubt God and say, oh, God, 
I don't trust you. I don't think you, I know where you're taking me. He believes his father, trusts his father, and he overcomes the temptation. One, two, three, three times he gives Satan God's word. It says, and he, and he keeps quoting God's word, keeps quoting God's word, goes back to his father's words and conquers temptation. Okay, what's the last thing he does here? You guys know this. From Matthew, he gives us the law. He ascends um, the Sermon on the Mount. He goes up the mountain, just like Mount Sinai, and he gives us a, a new law. Now, this new law is similar to Moses, but this new law tells us that now he is the supreme authority. All the teachers before me, all the things that came before me, I surpass them. Everything that was set before me, I am supreme above them. Everything about those is about me. So Christ is elevating it to a level that no one else could go before, and he puts himself in a new place. Okay, so I want you to understand again, as we look back all the way to Matthew 1, all these genealogies, the pattern set by God is foreshadowed in Christ over and over again. And the more you study the Bible, the more you realize, wow, everything's connected. Everything has symbolism. God doesn't do anything by accident. God knows where he's leading us. God knows where we are, and God knows where he's taking us. Nothing by accident. Okay, let's look at the next passage. Okay, so um, number two is Christ in the line of David. So we studied a little about Abraham. That was Christ in the Exodus. Number two, Christ in the line of David. And this is the second 14 um, gene, uh, generations. This is 400 years, 400 years from King David into the time of the exile. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about King David in this next segment of 14 generations. Okay, so here's King David. King David, um, you guys remember who was he anointed by when he was a little boy? Samuel, that's right, Samuel. So um, David is really the king of Israel at that point. It's like he's a, I don't know how old he is, he's a little boy, right? All his brothers are above him, he's the littlest guy, and somehow he's king. But his king is not realized, his kingship is not realized yet. He's like this little boy, um, anointed king, but he's not king. So it's strange that the kingdom has not come to fruition yet, but he's rightfully king. Okay, just keep that in mind when we think about that, because what happens next is very interesting. He has a long, long battle in his life. His main enemy is not the Philistines. His main enemy is not Goliath. His main enemy in his life is, let's see, it's King Saul. That's right, King Saul. King Saul is always after this guy. King Saul is always after him. King Saul is always trying to kill him. King Saul is always trying to trick him into different things. He has this long battle. So think about it again. Um, David is king. David is the rightful king. Who's fighting against him? Kind of like the king of this world. Kind of the king who's in power, who says, I'm not going to relinquish my power to you. Even though David's the rightful king, this king who's on the throne is fighting him and fighting him. And there's a battle going on. The rightful king versus the king of this world. And King Saul represents basically all the things of this world that fight against the rightful king. That's kind of interesting, right? Oh, sorry, I didn't have the picture up there. Okay, there. Okay. And then lastly, um, after the long battle ends, after King Saul dies, and remember, David had many opportunities to what? He could have killed King Saul, right? He could have taken that throne. He could say, you know, that's mine. I belong there. You don't. He had those opportunities. I think at least twice I can think of that. He could have killed King Saul, but he didn't. He said, I'll wait for God. I trust God's plan. I trust my father, you know, that the Heavenly Father will put me in place at the right time, at the right place. He didn't take things in his own hands. So he trusted the Lord's path, trusted the kingdom will come into place. My kingdom will come into place at the right time, the right place. And finally, God does bring him to the throne. 
And David's kingdom is like no other kingdom before him. He is a king elevated in a way that um, Israel never had that kind of power and that territory enlargement. It gets a little bit bigger under Solomon, but David basically enlarges that kingdom to a place that Israel had never been before. Okay, so you see the king, kingdom slowly coming into fruition through King David. It's a long process. Okay, so you guys know where I'm getting at with this. So we see Christ foreshadowed in the same way that he is anointed king. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 7 tells us he is the highest priest, the highest king ever. After his death, his resurrection, and obedience to the Father, Christ is rightful king. He did it. He didn't fall to temptation. He followed the Lord's will. He lived perfectly on this earth. He should be king. He's anointed king. He's raised up at the right hand of God. As far as we're concerned, he is king. But his kingdom has not come to fruition yet. He is fighting this battle for us, and we are part of that battle. We're fighting against this world. The kingdom of this heir, the prince of this world, is still fighting against us. Christ is the rightful king. We're the rightful subjects of it. We're fighting, but just like that, there's this battle going on. It's a long battle. We think that God doesn't know what he's doing, that God's not going to bring us to fruition, but he is making us into the men and women that we need to be. So that same battle against the world that um, King David fought, we, as citizens of the kingdom, are fighting that same battle. We're in that same plane. We're wrestling with it. We know that Christ is king. We know that he's on the throne. But in another sense, we're still fighting. That kingdom is still coming to fruition. And lastly, we know, uh, we sang about today, that eventually Christ will come. That second kingdom, uh, his second coming. And that's why I turn return of the king. The return of the king will bring that kingdom. There's no more sorrow, no more joy, or no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. And Christ will be on the throne forever and ever. And that's what we're looking forward to, that Christ's kingdom is unstoppable, that there's nothing that will stop him. Okay, so that's two parts of the genealogy we covered. We covered um, Abraham, we covered David, and we've got a last part here. This is kind of interesting. So um, number three, Christ's kingdom, peace and joy. So this part of the genealogy is from Babylon all the way into the birth of Christ. This is another 14 generations, and it goes 600 years between these 14 generations. And I'm concentrating mostly on the first part here, after deportation to Babylon. So when you think of uh, Babylon or you think of the exile, you basically think of outside of God's kingdom. So um, all the Israelites knew that this was the promised land and that's what God works with us and God loves us and we're protecting the promised land. When you get taken out of the promised land, when you get taken into exile, when you get taken out of God's um, kingdom, you're basically in shame, you're... Um, ostracized, isolated, you're out of kingdom. It's basically like being out of the Garden of Eden. Like in the Garden of Eden, everything's great. Everything's good. When you get thrown out of the Garden of Eden, you're naked, you're ashamed, and you're like, well, this is not where we should be. So exile represents that. Every Israelite knew that. When you talk about exile, you're like, wow, we're thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Okay, so going with that context, we're going to go to a interesting passage from um, X, no, no, no. Uh, Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, God brings Ezekiel to this like valley, like this valley of like dry bones. So first of all, we're in exile. First, we're outside of God's territory. First, we're outside and shamed already. And then God brings them to the worst place, like this huge pile of bones. And bones to the Jewish people are unclean. 
and it represents death all, your, death to all of us. But for Jewish people, they don't want to see a pile of bones. It's like the, one of the worst things you could see. And so God brings them there to this pile of bones. And, and what does he ask him? Can these bones live again? You think, whoa, I don't think so. We're in exile. We're in shame. We're not in God's presence. And, and, and one of the things I've, I forgot to mention, when you're outside of Israel, it's basically God has left the temple. You know, like when Elvis leaves the building, it's much worse than that. Like Elvis leaving the building, it is much worse. When God leaves the temple, like there's no God there anymore. And they're like, he shows them this pile of bones. Like, can these bones live again? And um, Daniel goes, oh, oh, um, excuse me, Ezekiel goes, only you know that, Lord. Only you would know that. And God answers him and says, yes, I will bring flesh. I will bring life. I will bring a new king, a new shepherd after my own heart. And you know, you just can't really see that picture, but he's basically putting flesh and life on these old bones again, bringing new life where there's shame and guilt and isolation and no God out of these dead bones. Ezekiel is shown, yes, I can do it. I'm the God that can bring you back. I'm the God that can lead you there. I know where you're at. I know you're in exile. I know you're ashamed, but I can bring you new life. And if we follow the Lord, that's where he's leading us toward. So for us, we know that people, including us, we reject God, we've broken his covenants, we seek idols, we choose to serve Caesar rather than God. And yet, God, through his death, through the shame, through the curse, brings us new life, just like the Israelites. And that new life comes from Christ saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we're just like the Israelites. We're just as much shame, just as much death, just as much desolation. And God somehow, through Christ, this incredible thing that we celebrate every Easter, remember every Christmas, remember every time we're in God's presence, that his presence brings us new life. And he's not lost. He doesn't wonder why we're out here, why we desolate, why we naked, why we ashamed. He, he knows where we're at. And he's done everything he can to bring us back in to his presence. So that brings us to my passage that I had us read today as a congregation. I'm just going to concentrate on a little middle part, the extra green part in the middle. Uh, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Here's the important part. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in a region of shadow of death on them light has done. I think, what is he talking about? What is Christ going through these lands of Zebulun and Naphtali about? And why is it so important that he start his ministry there? Okay, this is what I understand of that, of that passage, that Christ was quoting this passage from because there is a promise here. Way back in Isaiah's time, something's going to happen to Naphtali Something's going to happen to Zebulun. By the way of the sea, they're close to the sea, and they were dwelling in great darkness. So if you remember your map of the tribes of Israel, you can't really see it. It's purple and kind of yellow. Naphtali and Zebulun are pretty much the most northern kingdoms in Israel. The most northern kingdoms are the ones taken away by Assyria. You remember that? Assyria comes and takes away the northern kingdoms, takes them to exile. They are now in exile. So Remember this period of time, these 14 generations we just read about from the exile all the way to the time of Christ? 
these Jews are still in exile. These Jews are still ashamed. These Jews are still outside the temple. There's nothing there for them that they, they can really claim anymore. But Christ says, I'm coming back to you in exile through Naphtali, through Zebulun, through these northern kingdoms. I'm going to be your great light. I am the light in the darkness. I know you're in death. I know you're in shame. And I'm coming to you because this is the way we're going to restore you from the exile. And I'm starting with these northern two tribes. So as the new king and the new life he brings, the new king knows where we're at, knows where we're going, and he knows how to get us there. Okay, so I'm going to conclude on that again. Let's look at it again. These are three things we covered this morning. One, he's a descendant of Abraham. And he took Abraham through his own exodus. He took the Israelites through exodus. And he's bringing us the same exodus through that baptism and through the temptation and bringing us into his presence. Okay, number two, he's Christ in the line of David. And even though the line of David was very slow and slow in coming, that, that kingdom started like, this little boy who, like, he's going to be king. It just slowly came in. The same thing with us. We think that the kingdom's not coming. We think that God is not really working in our favor here on this earth. Remember, the gates of hell can't prevail against, what? The church, right? We're on the offensive. We think we're on the defensive. We think, you know, actually, the gates of hell can't prevail against it. We're actually offensive. We're, we're winning this battle because we've already won. Christ is on the throne. We don't have to think defensively when we're here on this earth. We are serving the king whose kingdom has already come. In many senses, it will come to fruition eventually like King David's in the second coming. But be assured, our king is here and bringing us to victory. The last thing we just talked about, about exile. This exile that comes in the darkness and shame and outside, God is bringing us back to light. He's a king or a shepherd after God's own heart. He's taking us from that darkness, from the exile, from the shame, and bringing us into light. That's exactly what we sing about in these Christmas carols. The light has come. This little baby born in a manger. Okay, so we see those three points going across here. And I'm going to leave you with the same thing I've been saying over and over through this whole sermon this morning. Where are you going? Do you know who's taking you there? And do you know when we get there? And we can... Be assured that all of us, in some ways, don't know those answers to those questions. We think we know. We think we can do it ourselves, but we can't. But we do have a king. We do have a perfect king who's leading us. And our hope is not in ourselves that we know and I can do it and somehow get us to where we're going. Our hope is in the king that we're following. The king has showed time and time again throughout history. He brings his people to where they need to be. He's walking beside them in their shame. He's bringing them out of the darkness. It's still true today. It's still true for us today. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in the king that will bring us there, the king that knows where he's going and brings his people to where they are. And he will reign. He'll reign over every tribe, every nation. He'll reign over Russia and Ukraine. He'll reign over Israel and Palestine. He'll reign over the U.S. He'll reign in Pittsburgh over all things. This kingdom will endure forever. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, because the king is here. Okay, let's pray. Father, we see how you've worked throughout history. And when your people were idolatrous, your people were in shame, your people were sinful, you continue to work with them 
Bring them into light. Bring them into restoration. Bring them out of the darkness. May we trust that you're doing the same thing today, the same thing in our lives. Those of us in this room who've given our lives to Christ, may we be assured that your kingdom is bringing us into, making us into the men and women you need us to be. Thank you for the great transformation in our hearts that Christ brings. May you now give us the assurance that we can follow you wherever you lead and that you're going to bring us home. And those of us in the room that don't know you yet, may we find that peace and joy cannot be found outside of Christ, the only one that knows the way, the only one that can bring us uh, into heaven. And we give our hearts to you and form a relationship with you through the blood of Christ. Thank you for being our God and our King. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, that's our worship.